Our gospel reading for today is from Matthew chapter 26, and we'll be beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. That song that we just heard a portion of is the song Pressure by Billy Joel. And if you didn't catch these words, let me just read a a few of them uh, for you here. He says this uh, in the first verse. You've only had to run so far, so good, but you will come to a place where the only thing you feel are loaded guns in your face and you'll have to deal with pressure. Today, we are talking about pressure and there are various ways that we experience pressure in our lives. Uh, Pressure might come from a deadline that's been set so that you have to get your paper turned in by the deadline or you will fail, or you have to get your task completed at work, or your boss will reprimand you, and you may not get that bonus at the end of the year. There's pressure in that way from deadlines. There's pressure from relationships, relationships that we know that we need to invest in, relationships that we know are, are, are stressful or are going south. I think of the spouse who's in a marriage, It's going downhill and quickly. And she's feeling 
pressure because she knows that if things aren't righted in that relationship, that the world could fall apart for her. Custody of the kids, new home, splitting possessions, feeling pressure. Or maybe you feel pressure from, from illnesses in your life. Illnesses that you know something's wrong, you feel it, but the doctors can't diagnose it. Or maybe you're feeling pressure because the doctor did diagnose it and said, look, your cholesterol is high. You need to lose some weight. You need to start eating better. And you go home and you're feeling pressure when you're staring at that box of Dunkin' Donuts that you just purchased a few hours before. Pressure. What are you going to do when you experience pressure? We are in a series through the this season of Lent called The Places of the Passion. The past few weeks, we've looked at various places that our Lord journeyed his last week before going to the cross, before his resurrection. We looked at Jerusalem on a broad scale. We looked at the temple in Jerusalem. We looked at Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem. We looked at, last week, the upper room in Jerusalem. This week, the place that we're looking at is the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was a place where our Lord Jesus felt pressure. A little bit about Gethsemane and about what, uh, what we know about Gethsemane. Here's the map that we've, we've seen the past few weeks. So, Real quick, here's, here's the temple, right? Here is uh, the, the upper room, John's house, upper room there. And so that was where we were at last week. And Jesus and his disciples have, in a couple hours' time, gone from here and crossed over the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives here. And at the base of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. John tells us that Jesus frequented this place so that when it came time for Judas to find him, he knew where to look. We see in Gethsemane, these are pictures of of the Garden of Gethsemane today. And what do we see there? Trees. Olive trees, to be specific. This is the Mount of Olives, of course. And so these trees, interestingly enough, they're pretty old. They're like over a 1,000 years old, maybe 1,500 years old. We know they're not from the days of Jesus because the historian Josephus tells us that when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, that they cut down all the trees on the Mount of Olives because they're looking for fuel, right, and, and to make things. But these are some pretty old trees and and it's pretty cool to see that this is a real a real place and the meaning of the word gethsemane is place of oil pressing 
interestingly enough. And so let's take a minute and, and talk about oil pressing, olive oil pressing to be specific. Uh, the olives would be picked from those trees, and then they'd be laid on this platform here, and that, that stone would initially, this was the fa- first phase, uh, would crush these olives into like a pulp, right? And then that mash, that pulp, would be gathered and then put into a basket, kind of like the one we're looking at there. You can see there's some olives at the bottom of that basket. And when that, mash, when that whole basket was filled with olive mash, with, with pulp, uh, then it was placed underneath a, 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 a log with a, a stone, and it was squished down. And what were they doing as they're squishing that down? They're, they're getting the, the oil out of the olives. And so the best oil would come just from the lightest amount of pressure, but then so that they could get the, everything out of the olives, they would then add these rocks here to the end of the, this branch, and it would put more pressure, and they get more oil out of the olives. And you'd see the oil would drain down into that rock basin below and then drain out, and they would capture the olive oil that way. Fittingly enough, that this place, Gethsemane, was a place of, of pressure. Our pressure, what pressing down on the olives was, was regularly happening. And so, Jesus, he goes over to the Mount of Olives, and, and he's wrestling in this moment with his Father in prayer. Now, when we think about Jesus praying in the Mount of Olives, maybe you've seen this picture before. And it's fine. I just think it's a little too serene, a little too peaceful. Uh, I don't think this is really what this, the text, the Scripture text, describes for us. Jesus, you, you see the halo on his head and peaceful cl- clouds and hands folded in perfect piety, right? But what does is, what is the scripture text tell us about the posture of Jesus while he was praying? I already tipped my hand off earlier, or tip, tipped you off earlier when I said he was prostrate, laying on his face is, is what, the, what Matthew tells us. So I, I think Jesus might have looked a little bit more uh, like this, sprawled out, begging God, take this cup from me. Or, or maybe the anguish on his face looked something like this, where his hands aren't perfectly uh, folded together. They're just sprawled out begging. You can, you can feel the emotion from this picture. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't hide his feelings in Gethsemane. He didn't slap on a, a happy face, a, a religious facade. So you look good for the disciples. No. He was brutally honest. Jesus knew, and Jesus had 
predicted multiple times his father's plan, told the disciples what was going to happen. And yet, at the same time, it's one thing to to know uh, up here in your head what's going to happen. It's another thing to experience it in your heart when you're actually in that moment. When he is moments away from his betrayer bringing soldiers to arrest him and take him to his death, who is in profound anguish. He begged for another way. Father, my father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. As much as Jesus was was experiencing, was going through in this moment, and as weak and vulnerable as he looked, paradoxically, he was strong. Because although he wanted nothing more than this cup to be taken from him, Jesus didn't waver. And, And this is where I would say, that the Garden of Gethsemane and, and Jesus' actions in the Garden of Gethsemane give proof to the reality of his existence. Here, here's what I mean. There are other heroes of, of faith and life and people that we look up to uh, both in the church and out of the church. Uh, out of the church, I think of uh, Socrates, I believe it was, who, who was about to drink a cup of, of poison and kind of went to it stoically. At least that's how it was portrayed or how it's been handed down, that he went and it's like, yeah, I don't care. It's all good. I'm fine. He looked stoic. He looked unshaken. Or the, the other extreme that sometimes we see, we see this just before Jesus' time with the Jews through uh, the Maccabees, where, where I believe it was Judas Maccabee who was going to his death. And, and when he went to his death, he didn't go stoically, but he went passionately, boldly, in the face of those who were about to take him down. And we look up to that, we think, oh, isn't that inspirational? Someone so bold in the face of death. And yet, that's not what we see with Jesus. Out of this moment, and, and, and here's why I think this is, that's important for us, is because if this wasn't true, why would Matthew or the other disciples, Luke, John, Mark, why would they record it in this way? I think they recorded this way because this is how it happened. People like Matthew were close enough, they, they saw it. They saw that Jesus was filled with anguish and sorrow and lament. Three times, Jesus prayed for the cup, this cup, to be taken from him. Verses 39, verses 43, verses 44. 
So what was this cup? This cup is different than the cup that we talked about last week, the, the cup that Jesus instituted his Lord's Supper that was connected with the Passover. No, this, this cup, this cup was, was different. This cup was the cup of God's wrath. In Isaiah chapter 51, we read, and, and it's probably about, I think, 14 times is what I came across, what I researched and my research showed, that the cup of God's wrath was talked about in the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, scriptures that Jesus had. Isaiah 51, verse 17, says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. That's the cup that Jesus is talking about. That's the cup that Jesus is starting to, is beginning to experience here in Golgotha. That's the cup where, where Jesus is begging God, his Father, my Father, take this cup from me. This cup was unmitigated death. Here's what I mean. We know from Scripture that we talk about this, that, that the, the wages of, of sin is death, right? We know from the very beginning that when Adam and Eve ate from, ate from the tree in the Garden of Eden this time, that they couldn't eat from it, they weren't supposed to eat from it, because they would die. And eventually they did. But I would argue that even the death that Adam and Eve experienced, even the death that people experienced from that time forward, Christian and non-Christian, I would say that death is a mitigated death. We look at the account from Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, yeah, yeah, Adam and Eve, they die. This is a few hundred years later for their physical death to take place. But what happened immediately, immediately upon this, this sin, this fall, we see two things from the Lord. One, he promises the Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, he gives the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, when he says that the child, the woman's child, would be bitten by the snake and he would crush his head. Have you seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson? In that movie, it's in that scene when Jesus is in, the Geth in Gethsemane that he stands up and what does he do? Crushes the head of Satan. It's, the gospel from the very beginning was prophesied. Not only that, not only were they given words and a promise, 
But the Lord God, he clothed them. They had, if you remember the story, tried to make clothes of fig leaves. And I'm just guessing that fig leaves don't make great coverings, right? I don't know what the insulation value on them would be. So what did the Lord do? He gave them garments of animal skins. What's the assumption there? What's understood? Well, for animal skins to be present, an animal had to be sacrificed, pointing to our Lord Jesus. And they're clothed with these garments that the Lord made. I'm I'm guessing they're a lot better than the fig leaves. (laughs) See, even then, yeah, Adam and Eve, they suffered death. But it was mitigated. It was not as severe as the death that our Lord Jesus was looking into as he's thinking about drinking this cup. The death that comes from God's wrath. People hear that and you know, what do they say when anyone talks about the wrath of God? Oh, I don't like a wrathful God. I, I believe in a God of love. And I, to that, I would say baloney. It's from God's love that his wrath pours out. Right? When you love something and you see it fallen, broken, being hurt, being victimized, being taken advantage of, being betrayed. When you love that thing, you get wrathful. If you see this happen to your child, to your spouse, you would get wrathful. How much more so does God, loving this world that he created, look at it, see the brokenness, see the fallingness, and out of that say, this is a mess, and get wrathful. You see, he loves you so much that he hates it when he sees you being taken advantage of, you being hurt. And so he comes up with a plan from the beginning, that plan that he himself would send his own son to drink to the dregs the cup of wrath. Because only he could conquer that death. Being the perfect sacrifice that Jesus was, living perfectly, living without sin in his life, he was able to enter death, take the wages of of sin upon himself, feel the pressure that you and I deserve, the pressure of the weight of the world, the sins of the world, pushing down every last drop of blood from him. And when he did that, in exchange, he gave you his life, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace for you. So if someone says, well, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath, my question back would be like, well, how did your God show you his love? 
It's one thing to say in theory, I believe in a God of love. It's another thing to show, to put, to walk the, the talk, if you will. How did our God show that he loves us? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. He loves us that much. At that moment, Jesus, as he's praying in Gethsemane, where was he? He was on the Mount of Olives. What was on the other side of the Mount of Olives? The Judean wilderness. All he would have had to do is take a short hike into the Judean wilderness where he spent his 40 days of temptation at the beginning of his ministry. He could have gone over that ridge and been gone out of sight forever. They would have never found him there. But he didn't. In fact, what do we see Jesus do at the end of our our text here? He prays. Praise the cup be taken from him. It wasn't taken from him. He knows what he has to do. He knows his Father's will. He knows his will is to do his Father's will, ultimately, even if it doesn't feel good. And so, at the end of this text, he says, verse 46, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He doesn't say, Rise, let us get out of here. My betrayer is at hand. I need to get out of this temptation. No, he walks to his betrayer, knowing that he's walking to his death and drinking the cup of God's wrath. For for Christians, what Jesus did in the face of unmitigated death informs and changes how we can enter into death. Now, let's be honest here. Death is is still painful. We still feel the pain of sin when we lose a loved one or when we fear our own death. But it's a mitigated. It's, It's been lessened. Why? Because we know our death is nothing more than Asleep. That's what the Apostle Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Those who have gone before us, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. For us, death, now that we have Christ, now that we have a Lord who has conquered death, who has overcome sin and pain, he has given us life so that for us, as we enter into death, we can say, eh, we'll be up in a few minutes. It's all good. We're going to be with Jesus. Jesus is coming back. He's the victor. He's overcome. Praise be to God. Totally informs the way that we can carry ourselves in this world because we now know we can stand like like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II, is in a concentration camp in April of 1945 last days of of World War II in Europe, and Bonhoeffer was about to be hung. And as he walks out to, to be hung, he stands there with a noose around his neck, and he says, this is the end. But for me, 
the beginning. <laughs> Christians, we can move forward with that boldness, knowing that even death, that last enemy, has been defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ. Last, I would just want to talk about the disciples in this. Of course, we've been focusing, and I think this text f- focuses primarily on Jesus and his sacrifice for us. But, oh, what did the disciples do? They went to sleep, <laughs> right? The same disciples who just mom- literally, just moments earlier said, Not me, Lord, Peter says. I'll even go to death for you. Falls asleep. The same disciples, Jesus, he's praying with with the 11, and then he takes three a little further in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same three, Peter, James, and John, that he took up on the Mount of Transfiguration, that saw Jesus in all his glory and deity, but now, when they see Jesus in all his humanity, they don't know what to do. Was it depression? Maybe they were just tired. Their eyes were heavy, Matthew tells us. Whatever it was, they weren't there for Jesus. Jesus didn't even ask them to pray for him to get out of it. He just asked them to pray that they didn't enter into temptation themselves. And that yet they fall away. These are the same, uh, same disciples that in Matthew 16, when Jesus first predicts his death, they denounce it. Peter says, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. Then the second time when he predicted his death, right after the mountain of tra- transfiguration, Matthew 17, they're sorrowful. Third time when he predicted his death in Matthew chapter 20, they're filled with pride. James and John come up to him. And what do they say? They say, may we sit at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. And what's Jesus' question back to them? Can you drink the cup that I have to drink? Yes, we can. They're prideful. They're, they concern about their, they're concerned about their place. When it comes time to drink, they sleep. Maybe, maybe the disciples who had been with Jesus for three years at this point, maybe they needed this one final lesson before Jesus went to the cross. The lesson of failure. The lesson of humility. And still Jesus invited them, come pray with me. He knew they were going to fall. He already predicted it. Come pray with me. Come on. Jesus, throughout this all, continued inviting them in. As the disciples of Jesus today, we, we recognize our dependence upon the life and sacrifice of Christ, that he wasn't merely a good example, although he was that, but he was so much more. Sometimes in, in the world today, when you hear about things like denial and betrayal, and being betrayed, the popular 
psychology kind of a response to that is you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Look within. Or, or when you hear about pressure, you got to withstand that pressure and look within and find the inner strength. And I'm, I'm not against these first article gifts that God has given us, right? When I say first article gifts, I mean first article of the Apostles' Creed. God created everything. He created us for things that, 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 that help us through life. He's given us, say, coping mechanisms, right? A little bit about me. In undergrad, I was a psychology major and a sociology minor, right? So I'm, I'm all for those things to an extent, However, as followers of Christ, we admit that there's going to come a day when the pressure is too much, that we can't bear it, that what's being asked for from us at work, at school, in family, in health, will crush us. But we can turn to our Lord who was crushed for us, knowing that like the disciples in the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament that failed, we can fail and Jesus still invites you in. Come on. Keep coming. I'm here. I got you. I got your back. I got your front. I got your side. It's all good. Because I have the victory. That victory is now yours. So we follow Jesus. Good and bad, left and right, up and down, when we don't know where we are in life, we follow Jesus all the way to the cross and to the empty tomb. Next week, we follow Jesus from Gethsemane to Caiaphas's courtyard as he is brought up uh, in a kangaroo court on trumped-up charges. So, till then, the peace of the Lord be with you. Amen.